I invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Revelation chapter 3 as we continue our series that we're doing just in the first four chapters of the book of Revelation. And uh, you have some notes in the worship folder, so I invite you to take those out as well. Um, so some of, uh, there's a lot of cities around the country that uh, you know by their nicknames. So the Windy City is, uh, that's right, Chicago. Uh, I thought it was the wind, but it's the politics, actually, that gives them that name. Uh, it's true. Sin City. Las Vegas, that's right. Uh, Music City. I heard a lot of different answers there. Uh, Music City is actually Nashville. Motor City. You got it. This is an easy one. Big Apple. Big Easy. New Orleans is the big easy. And best of all, America's finest city. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> well, what's behind the name of this sixth church that we're looking at, the Church of Philadelphia? Um, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania has tried to live up to its name uh, unsuccessfully. Um, a city of brotherly love. William Penn gave it the name because he was hoping that it would be that. Uh, I had a friend in seminary that was from Philadelphia, and any time he was introduced and someone would ask him where he was from, he would say, yep, the city of brotherly love, which it is definitely not. Um, uh, or, or as he used to refer to it, Philadelphia, because it's so <laughs> dirty. So. But, <clears throat> so let's look at a city profile of the Church of Philadelphia uh, in modern-day Turkey, in Asia Minor, in the book of Revelation. The city was a bit had a bit of an identity crisis because it, it, it had been renamed several times. Philadelphia sat on a, a geological fault line, um, and so earthquakes and volcanic activity were a constant, and it forced evacuations and unexpected death and devastation, as you can imagine, and constant rebuilding. And every time the city was rebuilt, it got renamed for the emperor who gave the money for it to be rebuilt. So um, it was founded by brothers who actually really had a, a renowned love for each other. One was the king. And they, um, th that was how the city got its name really from them. The f there was this fertile volcanic soil that made for a, a place that we might think of as, as kind of our, uh, it was their Napa Valley. It was just, it was the, produced a lot of the grapes that made wine in the first century. Um, the earthquake leveled the city in 17 AD and aftershocks continued not just for, um, for weeks or months, but for years there were these aftershocks. Um, how many of you have been in what you would say was a serious earthquake? Wow, a lot of you. And you might be thinking, well, define serious. Anything that trembles the ground is serious. But, um, you know, I've talked to people who've been in really bad earthquakes, and they don't want to sleep, at least initially, under anything that resembles a roof. They don't want to have that, think of that falling on them. Um, and that was, uh, that was kind of their life. So there's a quote in here by an early Greek historian, Strabo, who said this, um, the walls, describing Philadelphia, the walls never cease being cracked and different parts of the city are constantly suffering damage. That is why the actual town has few inhabitants, 
but the majority live as farmers in the countryside. I'm thinking they probably slept out in the open. But this is the way the people of Philadelphia felt all the time, what you felt when you were in a, a bad earthquake. They'd come in, they'd conduct their business in the city, then they'd get out of the city. Um, so I had somebody in the Midwest tell me one time they would never move, this is just a couple years ago, to California because of the earthquakes. And then um, they had an earthquake in Kansas City in 2020. It was 4.5 magnitude on the Richter scale. I'm like, yeah, that's what you get. <laughs> so the city was also known as Flavia and Neo uh, Caesarea, following economic aid from those divine emperors that helped them out. Um, so those were a couple of the different names that they had. And then Emperor Domitian came along and uh, he ordered half the vineyards destroyed because he wanted to prop up the vineyard, vineyard growing in Italy and, uh, and around Rome because that was very important to their economy. So he, he basically stuck a dagger in the economy of Philadelphia by doing that, told them they should grow corn, which they attempted unsuccessfully to grow in that soil. Um, also, in, in Philadelphia, there were a lot of festivals, athletic and, and uh, religious festivals were popular there. But all, bottom line, they, they had a very shaky and insecure existence in Philadelphia. Um, and all these details help us to understand some of the dynamics that were going on there. And it says what, what, what Jesus says to them and why it speaks so particularly to their situation. So let's read the words that Jesus said to the church at Philadelphia in Revelation chapter three, beginning at verse seven. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, these are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. When he open, what he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars. I will make them come and fall down at, at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. I'm coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And will, I will also write on them my new name. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is God's word to us this morning. So the letter begins with this reminder, and this is on your outline, of who Jesus is. These are the words of him who is holy and true and holds the key of David. So these are more like titles. Uh, the Holy One. 
So Hosea 11 says, for I am God, not man, the holy one among you. And and I hope that one of the verses that you've memorized is John 1, 14, that says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten son of the father, full of grace and truth. And so this is, that's who Jesus is. Uh, He is the God who is the holy one among us. And then there's the title, the true one. Uh, What he says is the truth because it flows from Jesus who is the truth, says in John 14. And as 1 John 5 says, they could count on the one who is the true God and eternal life to speak truth to us. And then he is the one who holds the key of David. And the key of David represents Christ's authority to open the door into his future kingdom. So that's heaven and and that's our salvation being secured right there, being assured. That's judgment being certain that he will come to judge the earth. So Jesus has absolute authority over everything. That's what he's saying. So Revelation 3 is, is announcing the trustworthiness of Jesus for us. These are the words of him who is holy and true and who holds the key of David. So I want to look closely at what, the, what was in front of the Philadelphians. Uh, and these are reflected in Jesus' affirmation of, of the church. So the first thing is that they had an open opportunity for the gospel. That's who they were. They had an open opportunity for the gospel. See, I have placed before you, verse 8, an open door that no one can shut. Um, <clears throat> a friend of mine from seminary, uh, Paul, remembers living in Boston uh, in, in at the, right after the Boston Marathon bombing, and, uh, which happened in April 2013, so nearly 10 years ago. And he was flying out of Logan Airport, Boston Logan Airport, and um, right about two weeks after the bombing. And he writes this, as I stood at the gate waiting for my flight, I noticed a young woman standing very much alone at her newspaper stand. She wore the hijab head covering of a conservative Muslim woman. I sensed that the Lord wanted me to speak to her. I approached her and greeted her with the Arabic greeting that means peace be unto you. And the woman burst into tears. I immediately thought I had insulted her or said something wrong or pronounced the greeting incorrectly and I apologized and asked what I said wrong and she said no, what you said was perfect. I'm crying because I've been standing here over two weeks now since the Boston Marathon bombing and you are the first person who's even spoken a word to me. So an open door is like a nudge to push us out of our comfort zone to people who are hurting and who need Jesus. And my friend continues and says, her name was Asha. How will someone like Asha ever know God's love if everyone in our community avoids her? So there are open doors all around us. Philadelphia was a gateway to the east. It was founded as 
a missionary city, not for spreading Christianity, but for spreading Greek culture and language. And it was doing the job very well. Uh, but now its missionary opportunity was far greater than spreading the Greek culture. It was strategically located for the spread of the gospel throughout Asia. And all these believers had to do was step out in faith. And it's, just, it's as if Jesus was holding the door open for them and saying, step through this door. Uh, you know, in Colossians chapter four, the apostle Paul asks the Colossian church to pray for him. And one of the things he asks prayer for is for an open door. He says in Colossians 4.3 that pray for, for me that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I'm in chains. So he wasn't writing to be able to escape. He, he was writing and saying, pray that I will be sensitive and bold and, and be able to speak to the guards and to my fellow prisoners and to anyone who might visit about the gospel. That's what he's asking prayer for. If Jesus gives us an open door, then he will, by his Holy Spirit, empower us to walk through that door. Martin Luther said it perfectly in A Mighty Fortress is our God. You know, uh, my first Bible class I took at Wheaton College, we had the choice of either taking the final exam or memorizing a mighty fortress is our God. I chose the latter. Uh, but he, our professor said, you know, the, it, the people that Martin Luther was ministering to were illiterate. They couldn't read. And so he taught them this song, put it to a bar tune, and said, if anybody asks you what you believe, just repeat the words of this song to them. And that's exactly what we believe. And so he says, did we in our own strength confide, our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. So Jesus is the man of God's own choosing. He's on our side. He opens doors. He empowers us to walk through the doors that he opens. And so we keep our eyes on Jesus. And as Paul says in Ephesians 5, we take every opportunity we can to speak about Jesus. So what are the opportunities that are in front of you right now? Maybe there's a crack in the door that you're missing. Maybe there's open doors right in front of you that you're not even seeing. Maybe there's a crack so, and you're hesitating because you're not sure what's behind the door. It's fearful to walk through a door where you don't know what's on the other side. But if Jesus opens the door, he will empower you to walk through it. So pray for open doors. And then go for it. The Philadelphian Christians also, and this is on your outline, were insignificant in numbers. I know that you have little strength or little power. This was not a criticism. This was just a statement of fact. They were a small church. They were small in size. So size doesn't matter. You know, you can, have a, 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 you can be small in stature, uh, but if, if that's all you have and the Lord is on your side, you're in a majority. You don't have to worry about being a minority or not being, being able to be heard. God will open ears. He does that. And this characteristic makes the next 
trait of Philadelphia stand out even all the more, and that was that it was a church of biblical faithfulness. It was a church of biblical faithfulness. You have kept my word. They were small but faithful. That's the way you could describe the church in Philadelphia. Um, Philadelphia succeeded where Sardis failed. No compromise in Philadelphia. Uh, There was no departure, no apostasy. And the word kept means that you will keep, keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. It's the same idea, the same word. He will keep you and he, will keep, he wants us to keep our eyes fixed on, on his son. And, and really the idea of keep is that we are kept for eternal life. So again, in, in your verses that you memorize, I hope that you have John 10, 28 and 29 memorized. And, and it says this, and I give them eternal life and they will never perish. Neither will anyone snatch them from me. For my Father who has given me is greater than all and and is more powerful than anyone else. And no one is able to snatch them from my Father's hands. What a great promise. Though these letters were written to the churches who had been through persecution and who were looking at more persecution to come. And these Christians in Philadelphia became known for their amazing endurance. Wouldn't it be great to be known for your endurance? You know, I I know so many of you, and I know that you have endured. You have kept going on in, in, in pursuing the Lord, even when there have been challenging times in your lives. And that's what he wants us to do. So we keep on enduring. We keep on seeking to obey him and being faithful. So that's the message for us. Be faithful. Be obedient to the word of God. And then it was a church of good reputation. And you have not denied my name. So standing firm through the persecution of these hostile Jews resulted in a a pure witness of, they were just, they had to be continually turning away from sin, turning away from anger, turning away from jealousy turning away from pride. And it was a beautiful reflection of Jesus when when the Philadelphian believers, they they were mirroring the character of Christ so that when Jesus looked at them, he said, wow, I, I see myself in you. And that's no greater, there's no greater compliment that we could get than to be like Jesus. That's God's goal for you. God's goal for you is to be like Jesus. He says in Romans 8, 29, God chose us to become like his son. And so how do you become like Jesus? Well, read the gospels. Uh, There are four gospels that give us four different angles that looking at, 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 it's like turning a gem in 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 the light. We get to see it reflected in all different ways. And so read the gospels, read about Jesus. Do what Jesus did. And so, the way to have a good reputation is to passionately seek Jesus. That's the way to have a good reputation. And then, Jesus can see coming spiritual attacks, and he offers four specific words of comfort and exhortation that all include his help. And so the first one, number one on your outline, he will humble your enemies and open their eyes to the truth. Verse nine again. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan 
who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars. I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. So like it was in Smyrna, one of the first adversaries to greet these Christians uh, and the open door they had were hostile Jews. So what is the synagogue of Satan? What does that mean? Well, you know, you can call yourself a Jew. You can call yourself whatever you want. But uh, you can, at the same time, behave badly. And that's what these Jews were doing. Did you ever notice that happens? That happens with, with all of us. You hear that all the time. The church is full of hypocrites. Well, you know what I say is, I say, well, what is a hypocrite? A hypocrite is someone who knows the right thing to do and doesn't do it. Hmm. kind of all of us, right? We all know the right thing to do. So when someone says the church is full of hypocrites, you know what I say? Hey, come join us. Be one of us. Because we're, tr- we're all trying. We're striving to love Jesus. We're striving to live for him. We don't always get it right. But we keep striving. And so the religious ones, what they were saying is they were saying, you know what? We're the ones in the know. We Jews. It can't possibly be God, God's faithfulness and truthfulness that you're representing. We're in, you're out. That's what they had, that's what they were thinking from their perspective. And this is what was happening in Philadelphia. And so they were inclu- excluding Christians from meeting with the other Jews. Remember, all the early Christians were Jews. And Jesus says, like at the end of verse seven, I'm actually the one that holds the key that opens the door that no one can shut. So the last part of verse nine, uh, what does Jesus mean when he says, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you? Well, what I found most helpful was a commentary by John Stott, and I wanna read just one little paragraph of what he said. He said this, and it, it helps understand what he's saying here. The Christless Jews are here portrayed as captives on the battlefield. They themselves would be familiar with this imagery. It had been prophesied of them years before. The sons of your oppressors, written to the Jewish people, will come and bow down before you, and all who despise you will bow down at your feet. So Stott continues, but now the tables are turned. Instead of Gentiles kneeling at Jewish feet, the Jews will bow down before Christians. Not, of course, to worship them, but humbly to recognize the community of Jesus as the new and the true Israel on whom God has set his love. So we are the true Jews. We are the true Israel, is what he's saying. And maybe even this last week, someone said something to you or about you that is still gnawing at you today. Maybe someone said something about you years ago and it still is getting at you. Maybe they've even passed away. But what they said is still gnawing for you. And the words of these people don't matter. In the end, what matters is what God thinks of us. And what he says to you is he says, I love 
you. That Jesus would come. You know, when my kids would be um, discouraged sometimes when they were little, you could see in their bodies. Their shoulders would droop over. Their heads were down. And, And I'd come and I'd put my hand underneath their chin and I'd make them look up at me and I'd say, you know what? I love you. It's gonna be okay. That's what Jesus does for us. It's like he puts his fingers under our chin and he, he, and he lifts it up to him. And he says, look at me. I love you. I, I want you to know that. I love you. That's what he's saying to us here. And then look at the, as again, that last part of verse nine. Imagine Jesus looking in your eyes and saying this to you. I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. It's all about God and his love for you. And then second, he will keep you from maximum affliction. Again, let's look at verses 10 and 11. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. We can't lose our salvation, but we can lose our crown. The verse 10, Jesus commands the church and says they have kept the word of endurance. So you have kept my command to endure patiently. And the word endurance is a great word. In the Greek, it's hypomone, and mone means to stay, and hypermone means to hyperstay. It's like I'm, I've got my feet planted, but there are spikes underneath my feet that go down two feet, and you can, you're not going to move me. So in Hebrews 12, it says Jesus hypermonate on the cross. He faced pain, he faced troubling, he faced, he faced death on the cross, but he hyperstood on the cross. He hyperstayed there for you. You know what that means for you? Look at yourself. Look at the troubles you have. Look at the things that you're worried about. Look at the pain in your life right now. Whatever kind of pain that might be, how do you deal with it? You crumble? Or do you hyperstand? Are you a person of endurance? Are you a person of durability? Not on your own, but because the Holy Spirit dwells in you? Jesus says, I'm a rock. I can hyperstand in the face of anything, and if you connect with me, I can make you a rock as well. That's the promise we have of, of who God is in our lives. Jesus says, I will keep you from the hour of testing. In other words, we can count on Christ's faithful, protective presence. Does it mean we'll never suffer? No, but he's with us. He's he's there to protect us and see us through, even if it's all the way through to heaven. Heaven's no demotion. So we can count on Christ's faithful, protective presence. And in return, we're urged to remain faithful to him and to to protect our precious heavenly reward. And so you know what his exhortation is to us? It's in 1 Corinthians 15. And he says, "My, my dear brothers and sisters, be strong, be immovable. Always work enthusiastically for the Lord, for you know that nothing you do for the Lord is ever useless. 
Maybe we don't see the results right now. Maybe we're going to have to wait to heaven to see the results. But we keep looking at Jesus, knowing that he has won the ultimate victory for us. And then third, he will make you strong and secure. Verse 12, the one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. So again, he's speaking to the hearts and the history of Philadelphia. And like we said at the beginning, it suffered all these earthquakes. You know what's still standing after an earthquake? In the first century, it was the pillars. And so this, is a, this promise here, this letter, is this idea that to the one who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. Now, the city that suffered so much and so long from this instability is to be rewarded with divine firmness and steadfastness like a pillar. So, again, Revelation 21 tells us that in the New Jerusalem, the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. So what do we have in the presence of God? Psalm 16, David says there is fullness of joy That's one of the fruit of the Spirit. The joy of the Lord is our strength. And so he gives us joy when we're in his presence. To be a pillar of Christ puts us in the position of absolute security. And along with that security, joy. And so is there joy in your life? If if you have the Holy Spirit living in you, There should be joy. There is joy. You just need to be joyful. Rejoice in the Lord always, Paul says. Again, I'll say it. Rejoice. And then finally, I will give you a whole new identity, he says. Verses 12 and 13. Here's another promise. And again, imagine Jesus looking in your eyes and saying this to you. I will write on you the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will write, I will also write on you a new name. So the church of Philadelphia already had a good name in heaven. And what Jesus is saying is it only gets better. I feel like that on Sundays. I get home and I think, man, I feel like I've had a taste of heaven being with my brothers and sisters who I love so much. And, and I, it's like a taste of heaven to be here. And Jesus is saying, heaven is only better. We have that to look forward to. And because they had not been ashamed of, to identify themselves with Jesus, our Lord is not ashamed to identify with them. Three times Jesus promises a new name and blessing and honor. They will receive the name of God, God the Father, the God of Jesus. They will receive the name of God's city, the New Jerusalem. So New Jerusalem, we learn later in Revelation, is is both a place and a people. So you are the New Jerusalem. That's who you are. You are, we are as believers, the New Jerusalem. And so it's not the earthly Philadelphia, it's the heavenly Jerusalem. And third, they will receive, still in verse 12, the new name of Jesus. The name signified uh, who my God is and where my home is. It is with the Lord. 
And so how do we summarize that up? I, I belong to the Father, and, and heaven is my home, and Jesus is my Lord. That's what he's saying in verse 12 there. As a genuine Christian, think about this, you bear the signature of God on your life. Are you representing that signature well by the way you live your life? And I think that what he's saying here overall is that the great reward of the gospel is God himself. That's who we get when we believe the gospel. We get God. One commentator said it like this, when we risk our lives to run after Christ, we discover the safety that is found only in his, safety is found only in his sovereignty, that security is found only in his love, and the satisfaction is found only in his presence. This is the eternally great reward, and we would be foolish to settle for anything less than getting God himself. So remember, the city of Philadelphia changed its name after all these rebuilds in the city, and, and so it was important that the church be reminded that their true citizenship is in heaven. And this is a reminder to you that we may be Americans or whatever culture, whatever flag we live under, but we are first and foremost under the flag of Jesus. We are citizens of heaven. And that's the way God wants us to live our lives for him. Their loyalty was to God in, in Philadelphia. And, and he's saying, hey, I, I want the same loyalty from you. And, and it was written to the first century Philadelphians. It's also written to the 21st century Christians at Claremont Emanuel. The same words. So I want to go back to this open doors that we talked about earlier. And um, <clears throat> maybe right now you're spending too much time staring at closed doors that are in your life. You're spending too much time trying to figure out why certain doors didn't open for you at the right time. Even doors for ministry, even doors for great things. And maybe it seems like those doors have been slammed in your face for too long. And the truth is, when God closes a door that maybe seemed obvious and easy to walk through, he opens doors that may appear less desirable and even more difficult to get in. And maybe you're in a place where sharing your faith or living your faith is presenting for you all kinds of challenges. And by place, I don't mean a physical location, but maybe your place in life that you feel for whatever reason is limiting you. Can feel that way. Maybe your boss has put the lid on anything religious happening at work. Maybe in school, everyone's perspective seems to be tolerated, but your perspective. Maybe you're a stay-at-home mom with talkative kids around. Maybe you're a young mom and you have a baby that you wish would say something, even that you could uh, kind of understand. Maybe you feel limited because of physical disabilities. Or you feel limited because of finances. Whatever it is you have going on, it just seems like there are closed doors to fruitful ministry everywhere. So what do we do? Well, we let what seems insurmountable for us turn our attention 
from back off of ourselves onto God. We focus on Him. And we don't want to limit God. We don't want to miss what He's doing in our lives from, uh, from our limited perspective. And so we turn our attention, our little power, to His all sufficiency. God can use small things and insignificant people to accomplish great things for His kingdom. He wants to use you to do that. I think sometimes God puts us in a position where we're forced to trust Him completely. Walking by faith is not just a nice option. That's what God commands you to do and me to do, to walk by faith. Are you walking by faith? When we commit to following wherever God leads, to follow his nudges, to follow his direction, he will open doors of great opportunity but for us to do, but we, and, and we can rely on him to have the strength to walk through them. He won't open the doors and then not give you the strength to do it. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Even go through doors that seem just to be cracked, like we can just see a sliver of light there. And maybe God says, that's the door I want you to go through. You need to open the door. I've given you that openness, that light that's coming through. Now walk through it. And just keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. And so then finally in verse 13, whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is what the Spirit said to to Philadelphia. This is what the Spirit is still saying to us. And so what do we do? We ask for open doors and know that he'll open them. If Paul asked for that, for prayer, we can sure pray that for ourselves. And then we pay attention to any light coming through the door. And we, we nudge it open. We lean against it. We, we walk through it with the power of the Holy Spirit. We do it for his glory. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word connects so squarely with the realities of our lives. It's because your word is the living word. It it makes us alive. Lord, I pray that all of us would be able to get our eyes off of doors that are closed in front of us, doors that are slammed in our face, and that we would look for the open door, that we'd pray that, that we would be sensitive to that. Lord, maybe there are people here that aren't really a part of your kingdom yet because they've never received the gift of eternal life. And so I pray right now that, that if that's anybody, that you would draw them to yourself, Father, that they would respond in faith by simply saying yes to you. I need you. Lord, come into my life. Make me into the kind of person you want me to be. I want to live for you and for your glory. And we pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Well, he who has said all these things to us declares, yes, I am coming soon. Amen, come Lord Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Like Ben said, we're blessed to be a blessing. So please bless somebody that you're around. Get to know some folks. It's easy. There are name tags right here.
Have a great day.